Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Sarah Wise interviews Dr. Nicholas Rowan about his article, The Association of Frailty with Olfactory and Gustatory Dysfunction in Older Adults, a Nationally Representative Sample. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Carl Stores. Carl Stores enables anywhere care with the new sterile single-use flexible video endoscopes for ENT. As patient treatment continues to migrate, some sites of care are faced with reprocessing and sterilization challenges. With the new single-use endoscopes, reprocessing, transporting of dirty endoscopes, and repair costs are all eliminated. The video endoscopes provide a sharp image and can be used on multiple Carl Stores video platforms. Please visit www.carlstoresnetwork1.com forward slash ENT to find out more. Welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm Dr. Sarah Wise, one of the rotating hosts of this podcast, a rhinologist, otolaryngic allergist, and an associate editor for the IFAR Journal. Joining me today is Dr. Nicholas Rowan, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, and a rhinologist at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Welcome, Nick. How are things in Baltimore? Hey there, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. They're great in Baltimore. They're the status quo for 2020. Happy to be here and excited to take a little break from that and have a chance to chat with you today. Fantastic. So today we're going to be discussing Dr. Rowan and his co-author's recent article, in the IFAR journal, the association of frailty with olfactory and gustatory dysfunction in older adults, a nationally representative sample. Congratulations on your publication, Nick. Thanks so much. As we're all aware, the world has recently tuned into olfactory and gustatory dysfunction quite substantially during COVID. This particular article is not directly related to COVID-induced smell and taste loss, but I think has some interesting implications for our clinical population, especially our patients of advancing age. So why don't we initiate the discussion of your paper by having you give us a short synopsis of the study? Sure thing. So I I think I totally agree that the timeliness of this study is is really important to kind of highlight some of the things that we as rhinologists and otolaryngologists already know, and that is that smell is important. But this really began probably back in, I think the first studies were out in 2004. There were some really attractive studies put out by Dr. Pinto and his colleagues looking at mortality and how it relates to olfaction. And so this study is a, a broad database study using the, the NHANES database, which is a nationally representative population-based study the National Health and Nutritional Examination Study is is the full name for it. And what it does is it samples about 10,000 patients from the U.S. each year to get a representative sample. And in this study, they measure lots and lots of questions about patients' generalized health status. And for two years, they decided to measure patients' objective or their psychophysical ability to smell and their subjective ability to smell. And the similar taste issues. So they assess their smell and taste. And what we examined in this study is we looked at those two variables, so subjective and objective smell and taste function, or as we called it in this study, and as I'll refer to the rest of our conversation, so measured olfactory outcomes and measured gustatory outcomes. We, we looked at those and how it compared to frailty. And so frailty, as I, I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about here in a second, Just globally speaking, it's a broad measure 
of a patient's physiologic status or their functional reserve, which is a function of both age and health deficits. We examined how frailty correlates with patient's smell and taste function. And what we found just on a global scale was that measures of subjective olfactory and gustatory outcomes, as well as measured olfactory outcomes correlated with this marker of frailty, which we, we found really, really interesting. And like I said, I think the timeliness of it is, is actually pretty important to continue to highlight the importance of olfaction in our lives and for, perhaps to a lesser degree, gustatory function. All right. Thank you for the, the summary. I think it, it's important that we take a moment to dive into this concept of frailty a bit more. It appears that the frailty index is associated with poor health outcomes and mortality. And in otolaryngology, we tend to hear somewhat peripheral discussions of various measures like the Charleston comorbidity index and the ASA classification that our anesthesia colleagues use. So how can we sort of better understand the concept of frailty? I think it's a great question. I think it's something that we should probably all ask ourselves as physicians because it, it is really important. And there are whole fields, you know, just like we are in our microcosm of otolaryngology and you and I, Sarah, in our little niches, well, frailty, there's a whole field of study for this. And it's been investigated for over a half a century, wasn't defined until about 20 years ago what it is. And it's, it's this concept that tries to figure out what is the phenotype for patient outcomes and how they'll do with any sort of intervention or they're just their health in general, better than just simply their age or the medical comorbidities alone. So what frailty hopes to do is it attempts to identify patients who are at higher risk of social vulnerability, who have medical issues, the patients who it's the kind of, you don't, when you see it, you know what it is, but you can't really put your finger on it. You say, I, I'm worried about that patient. This is kind of a way to kind of contextualize that. Frailty, as you mentioned, has been shown to be associated with substantial increases in healthcare costs, hospital admissions, length of stay postoperatively. And the, the really interesting thing about frailty and kind of one of my take-home messages from listening to some of our head and neck surgery colleagues is frailty is something that may be modifiable and it's got many implications in clinical care. So you can prehabilitate patients, you can optimize them before undergoing an operation, and you can really have the opportunity to deliver high value care. And I think that's a take home message. And so despite the increasing interest and relevance of this, there's really no way to define it. Again, I said, it's something that you, like, you kind of know when you see it, you, you look at a patient, you see a frail patient, and you realize that they are frail, but it, it's hard to really know what they are. And so there's been many different measures and ways to measure this. So you, you mentioned a couple from our anesthesia colleagues. There's a frailty index. There's a frailty phenotype, very similar to our field. There are many quality of life and patient reported outcomes that you can use. But for this study, we decided to use the frailty index, both because we think that it's a really useful tool, but also because these were many of the things that were available in this large database study that also had the corresponding smell and taste measures that we're interested in looking at. So what is this frailty index? Can you describe specifically what the measure is and how we really interpret it? Absolutely. I may not have this exactly right. It may be 41 items originally, but secondary to the minor limitation of this study, I think we, uh, we included only 39 different items. And it's an index that includes a whole list of different things that have been previously validated with demographics that we always look for. 
but it also looks for more meaningful, sometimes more meaningful things. Like if you had a stroke or you've had cancer, it also looks at other issues. Like if you're having difficulty seeing, hearing, or kind of performing any of your activities of daily living, it looks at the number of prescriptions you take, but it also gets kind of into some of the more granular details of a patient, such as their vital signs. So their heart rate, their blood pressure, it looks at their CBC. So you can look at their hemoglobin and figure out their anemic. You can look at their red blood cell distribution width to figure out what kind of anemia it is. You can look at their lymphocyte count. It really tries to paint a comprehensive picture of, of a patient as a whole, not just um, focusing on one particular organ or just one particular broad measure like age and whether they have cardiac issue or not. It really tries to kind of bring it all together. So as you mentioned, this frailty index, at least what I've seen has been mostly from our head and neck colleagues. And this is, at least to my knowledge, one of the first times that, that we're really seeing this brought to the rhinology sort of subspecialty. How did you come up with the idea to associate this with smell and taste disturbance? It's kind of a perfect storm. And so about 30 to 40% of my practice is, is skull-based surgery. And so I I see the patients who are somewhat like our head and neck colleagues. They don't always have the best outcomes. And that's really important to me as a physician. Similarly, I also have a really strong interest in chemosensory function. So smell and taste function as a whole and how that relates to both my skull-based patients and my rhinology practice. And then, as, as I mentioned before, there's been these really kind of attractive studies, headline studies that show that smell has been correlated with mortality. And that's kind of been something that we've touted as a, as, as a group for several years now. Something that just really kind of got me interested in thinking about it. And I kind of think of smell as I think the original description in the, in the first study on smell and mortality was that perhaps olfaction is a bellwether for how a patient is doing. It's one of the only places in the body where there's a cranial nerve just sitting there exposed to the external environment. And so perhaps the thing that is being exposed to all of the stuff that you're exposed to throughout, throughout your entire life, maybe the function of that cranial nerve, the thing that lives in your nose that we oftentimes overlook, maybe that's a really good indicator of how we're doing as human beings. That's the, the quick and dirty question that I was trying to answer in, in, in this study. Yeah. And I, I think this is really important information. And, and like you said, maybe something that sort of tunes us into the patient's sort of overall physiological well-being. I want to get into a little bit more about the specifics of the, the smell and taste measures that you used in this study. One of the criticisms that we often see for studies that measure smell and taste disturbance is a lack of both subjective and objective measures. In this study, you included the subjective reports of smell and taste function, as well as objective testing results as reported by the NHANES database. So can you describe the types of subjective questions that were asked, as well as the objective testing that was reported? Yeah, I'll turn that right back on you, Sarah, and say that while that is a strength of the study is also probably the limitation of this study. And so the subjective questions were quite broad. The NHANES database, again, it's a, it's a large, large database and a large survey meant for a lot of people. And so broad questions were asked. So have you had a problem with smell in the past 12 months? Have you had a change in the ability of your sense of smell since age 12? Do you have phantom smells or smell something that's not there? In regards to gustatory function, we asked, similarly, have you had a, a problem with your change in taste over the past 12 months? Is your ability to taste certain flavors 
disturbed? Do you have something that tastes bad in your, in your mouth and won't, and won't go away? And so those are the subjective questions. So maybe not the most detailed assessment that we might perform in some of our rhinologic studies. And then the objective measures, they use the pocket smell test, which is an eight item scratch and sniff, very similar to the UPSIT test, the University of Pennsylvania smell identification test that many of us are used, are used to. It's validated at that if you have a failure to identify three or more of those odors, we know that patients have a poor sense of smell. And then for the taste issues, and this is probably one of the biggest weaknesses of the study, I, I think, in an effort to kind of save time by the NHANE surveyors, you know, you have to figure out what things not to include in this large survey. They looked at two different salt concentrations and one bitter. And so they did not test the entire flavor palette that, that we have and we typically refer to and, and know as salt, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. So really, we're just getting, we had three measures of objective taste for this. I think that's really interesting that you see this as both a strength and a weakness. And I appreciate your comments around that. Can you tell us a bit more in depth what your results were? And, and were any of the results surprising to you? So with, within our sample, 21% were classified as having subjective olfactory dysfunction, whereas only 13% of them had measured olfactory dysfunction. About 14% of them had a subjective gustatory dysfunction problem, while 27% of them have measured gustatory dysfunction. So that was kind of in line with all of the prior reports and some of the prior NHANE studies that we've seen. So large swaths of the population, upwards of a quarter of the population has these changes in their smell and taste, both from a subjective standpoint and an objective standpoint. But then what we did was we categorized everybody on based on their frailty index score. So frailty index is a range from zero to one, and it has validated cut points. So you can break down patients into patients who are, are not frail or non-frail. You can describe them as a vulnerable population, a frail population, or the most frail patients. And so what we found was we, we did a multivariable regression in a couple of different ways, essentially correlating subjective and objective smell and taste outcomes with these frailty scores. And so first thing we did, we looked at just the overall outcomes and what we found were that across the board, patients who had increasing levels of frailty were more likely to have disturbances in both their olfactory and gustatory outcomes. But again, this is a large database that we're looking at. So there are many other things that can cause dysfunction in their, in somebody's chemosensory function. And so things like age, older age and the male sex and being a current smoker and several other variables that can influence the ability to smell and taste. And so what we did is we ran all these analyses again, and we corrected for those measures. And we found that even despite correcting for all of these things, we found that there was an increased odds of measured of subjective olfactory dysfunction and subjective gustatory dysfunction in the frail and most frail patient populations, as well as increased levels of diminished sense of smell or objective sense of smell in these same populations. We did not, however, find a difference in people who did not do well on their taste test. So the objective taste test that we used for this study Again, that's two measures of their ability to taste salt and one to taste bitter that did not correlate. Yeah, so that's interesting to me. I'm particularly interested in the lack of association with measured gustatory dysfunction and frailty. 
Do you think that's primarily related to the methods of testing the taste function? How else would you potentially interpret that? I'm not sure exactly what the underlying etiology of that is. I think it's really kind of one of two things. So again, as I'm strongly hinting at, I think the the biggest limitation of this study is that it is with database studies, you do have kind of some intrinsic shortcomings. And with this, again, while we do have the really kind of robust strength that we have both subjective and objective smell and taste measures, we don't have the world's greatest smell and taste measures. And that is a, as certainly true for the, for the taste dysfunction part of things and the taste testing part of things. And so it may be secondary to the granularity of the, of the instrument. And so perhaps patients have, you know, they all have issues with their ability to taste sweet. We're Americans. We love sweets, right? And so we didn't, we didn't test the ability to, to taste sweet. And so it's hard for me to say that it was really a super great instrument that we used. However, the big question that I have is that uh, a significant portion of how we experience food is from our sense of smell. Many of the things that we speak of in, in our daily talk, and we, we talk about the taste of something, it's really the flavor of something. And a lot of flavor comes from our, our olfaction. And so there's two ways we can smell. We can smell from the front of our nose, orthonasal olfaction. We can smell from the back of our nose, retronasal olfaction. And so that was not specifically assessed in this study. And I wonder if the collinearity, you know, the, the, the subjective and objective smell problems and the subjective taste problems, I wonder if those patients who have a subjective taste problem are not just patients who have a smell problem because their flavor experience is disturbed, whereas their taste is still functioning normally. And so I don't think we have the granularity in this current study to really assess that. And so I, I'm really interested in knowing whether there's a difference between smell and taste and for using them to measure frailty, if there is a way to kind of discriminate between the two or if they do discriminate or not at all. Yeah, I think those are very interesting thoughts on some of the, the results that you found. I also think that we should, you know, take a moment to acknowledge that, that there are some inherent concerns with research involving large databases. Obviously, they provide a large number of patients and, and can help find some interesting associations, but there are some other limitations of this type of work. Can you discuss some of those? Absolutely. I think that any database study should be looked at with, I don't want to say a skeptical eye. I think there's really great data. Look, these are studies that I'm, I'm proud to have my name on this. And there are, you know, there are many strengths. So there's robustness, the statistical power. But they are, it's, it's, a, it's a cross-sectional study of just wh whatever patients you get. Then Haynes has done really, really well. And so it is representative of the, of the population as a whole. So it, it really, it, it doesn't miss too much on that kind of cross-sectional part of things. However, it's, it's a non-clinical study population. So it's not looking at a specific disease process in question perhaps not necessarily the, the best in that regard for, for many, for many situations. We have in a, a certain clinical situation that we're looking for. And a lot of the times, you know, you're just relating to self-reported outcomes and survey results, which are may not necessarily be the best way to collect data. And again, it's not a kind of a prospective longitudinal study. And so you're really just getting a snapshot in time. So I think that these, these database studies are really, really excellent at showing kind of broad associations, but I think it's a lot harder to kind of tease out what perhaps is the etiology of some of these issues. And if these associations are kind of more in that cause and effect kind of realm, 
or if they are just associations of that. And perhaps we're missing something because we're not seeing that patient necessarily in front of us. And so I think that for, for this study in particular, while I do really like the NHANES database because of the way that it's set up, because it's, it's intentionally surveyed, I think that it's really kind of a, just a jumping point to answer the next question. Yeah, I think, I think that's great. I think we, we should take this information and go on to the next step, do the next study. So this work is important. Finally, the most, probably the most important question related to this research, what's the take-home message for our day-to-day clinical practice as rhinologists or otolaryngologists? How do we use this information in clinical practice or even as we counsel friends and family? I think with the high prevalence of olfactory disturbance, most of us probably know someone with smell or taste loss personally, and will get asked these questions. So how do we answer them? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good question. And again, getting back to why we investigated this question, that's, that's why we started there. Again, smell is kind of an, it's, it's often overlooked. And we, we talk about it in, in our small circles and in, in the lay public as well. But for obvious reasons with the ongoing pandemic, olfaction is really kind of it's getting a lot of attention. Oftentimes we're, we're thinking about it, sense of smell, it's probably not really that important, or maybe, you know, there's a small change in your sense of, in your eating habits rather. But when you really kind of dive into it and you look at some of the studies that have been put out over the past decade or so, olfaction, it's, it's really important. It's associated with these broad measures of quality of life, which we know are important. It's associated with things like nutritional deficits, depression, anxiety. As I mentioned, there was those big studies on mortality. And there's a lot of stuff that olfaction is associated with. And, and perhaps in some cases, I may go as far to say even, even causes, you know, it can be crippling for a patient. And so I think kind of the take-home study here is that perhaps we're onto something. And this, this is something that we can use where they can be assessed. And we can say, when you're trying to deliver high-value care, or you're trying to know who is a risk, perhaps this is something we can use in our clinical practice, needs to be investigated more. But certainly, it's something that I think has clinical relevance. You mentioned talking to your your friends and family. And I I think this kind of just drives home point. So even if it's not, you're sitting around the, the dinner table talking about frailty, you can talk about your loved one who had COVID and who lost their sense of smell and how that may lead to disruptions in their day to day life and, and why it's important to seek out remedies for things like olfactory loss and how we can get our patients better outcomes. And that's probably the biggest take home for me and why I'm kind of most proud of looking at this question and this study in particular. Well, thank you. I think this is important work. I've said it before and I thank you for doing it and I I wish you the best in future investigations. So with that, I think we'll end our discussion with Dr. Rowan today. I'd like to sincerely thank him for joining us for this discussion. And again, congratulate Dr. Rowan and his co-authors for their excellent work. And thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. This is Dr. Sarah Wise, and I look forward to talking with you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.